Welcome to the Anchor Church Podcast. Each week, we'll bring you the teaching from our central campus. We hope it's an encouragement to you. Thanks for listening. So I know everyone in here is still working on their New Year's resolutions, but just imagine with me. You pull up to the Jack in the Box drive through and you're at that place where it's like half menu, like half voice monitoring thing. I don't know the word for it, but you know what I'm talking about. And there from that voice monitoring menu kind of thing, you hear, I'm ready to take your order whenever you're ready. And you respond, well, I'll have a filet mignon and a lobster thermidor and two glasses of your finest cab. And of course you hear, uh, what? Because you can't order wine in a drive-thru. It doesn't work out like that. Well, this is where you hit the reality of there is something called a menu. Now, maybe we can switch it around a little bit. Like, uh, you're at the table on 6th Ave. It's an anniversary. It's some nice event that you're excited with. You're with a spouse, a close friend, whatever. If it's an anniversary, hopefully your spouse. And you're sitting down and the server comes up to you and they say, have you had a chance to look at the menu? And you said, yes, I looked at the menu and I want to get a Happy Meal with a large Sprite, no ice and lots of extra fries with, could you put some some more salt on it? You're going to get a blank stare. Why? Well, in both of these examples, you're ordering off the menu. Now, some of us, we need to order off the menu in small ways, the gluten-free, the vegetarian substitute, all of that, that's totally permitted. But when you order off the menu in the grandiose sense that I just described, you are missing something. Either you don't know where you're at, read the room, or you're suffering from some type of delusional sense of entitlement, that whoever is around you should get you whatever you want any of the time. Now, there are certain things in this world, unfortunately, that are just not on the menu. For example, I can't demand a million dollars from a stranger. I would love to demand that. Or I could demand it, but I cannot guarantee that the stranger is going to come on my demand and respond with say, okay, here you go. In fact, I can't demand that of somebody that I do know. I can't demand any amount of money from anyone. It's just just an unfortunate situation that I live in. And if you figured out how to do that and make it work, would you let me know afterwards in the lobby? We might even allow a seminar here at Anchor where you provide your wisdom and your insight. It's just not on the menu. Also, last year I turned 40, which means this year I'm turning 41, and I had to learn that like staying in the 30s for the rest of my life wasn't on the menu. I could pretend, but it wouldn't fool anyone. There's certain things that are off the menu in this world. And unfortunately, one of the things that's off the menu in this world is perfect relational peace. It's off the menu. Now, here's what I'm not saying. I'm not saying that every one of us in here is gonna experience seasons where everything is good and feels fantastic. 
I wish that on every one of us. I wish that every one of us would experience decade-long seasons where the kids are doing great, the job keeps giving you raises, and your friends keep on celebrating you, and it just is amazing and fantastic. And when somebody asks you, how's life, you have a really boring response because you just say, everything's just great, and you're actually not lying. I wish that on every one of us. And I think there are seasons where we'll experience that in different degrees. And I also am not saying, when I say perfect relational peace is off the menu, I'm also not saying that every one of us, when we are experiencing a good season, we can expect the other shoe to drop quickly, so we better perk up our anxiety because it's coming. I'm not saying that either. What I'm saying is, is that at this moment in time, we live in a world where conflict is a normal part of life. Relation, perfect relational peace is not on the menu. We're gonna bump into conflict. It happens, it's something that is just a part of life. And because it's a part of life, as Jesus followers, we need to grow in our understanding of how to do conflict well. I love the realism from Paul here in Romans chapter 12, verse 18. You know, Paul doesn't say, hey, you should be experiencing perfect relational peace. It should be normative. And if you're not, you're doing something wrong. Rather, he says, if it's possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Now, this is a command. Paul is saying, live at peace with everyone. But there are these conditions on the command that are interesting to take note of. If it's possible, as much as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Paul's recognizing that peace, even approximate peace, even partial relational peace, depends not just on one person, but on another party, and multi oftentimes multiple parties. And so that makes it a little bit more complex. Where conflict is something we might not bump into for a year, but we will eventually bump into it. So we have to learn how to do it well. Well, to get a guide on how to do conflict well, we're gonna be looking at Paul and Barnabas in Acts chapter 15. Now, I wanna, before we read the passage, I want us to kind of set the stage a little bit. In Acts chapter 15, they're about to step out on their second missionary journey this is like the, the second missionary journey that's ever happened. Some of us maybe have a habit of serving regularly in missionary trips. Maybe we've even developed friendships with certain people where we're going and there's this great rapport and this relationship. This right here is before any of that has happened. This is the second mission trip in the Christian church. And they're setting out on this journey looking towards kind of the relative uncertainty that they're going to face and they're looking to who's going to be on our team. Who are the people that we're going to bring along with us that are going to help us, that are going to use their gifts to advance the will and the ways of Jesus in the world. And Barnabas wants to bring John Mark and Paul doesn't want to bring John Mark. You see, John Mark in Acts chapter 13 uh, went on on the first missionary journey, the very first one, the one that was the first one. That's how that works, I guess. <laughs> and right about halfway through it, John Mark dipped. 
They checked the hotel room in the morning. The bags were gone. They checked at the front desk. They said, I don't know. He left in a hurry. He went back to Jerusalem, and we aren't told why. I mean, we can guess. Maybe he just was homesick. Maybe he was literally sick and needed to go home so he could get care. Maybe he disagreed with certain decisions that Paul was doing, and so he like just decided to ghost and go. We don't know, but he dipped on the first missionary journey. And so when Barnabas and Paul are deciding who's coming with them, Barnabas is saying, let's give John Mark another chance. And Paul is saying, no way, no way, no way. So we pick it up in Acts chapter 15, verses 36 to 41. Sometime later, Paul and Barnabas uh, said to Paul, Paul said to Barnabas, let us go back and visit the believers in all the towns where we preach the word of the Lord and see how they're doing. Barnabas wanted to take John, also called Mark, with them. But Paul did not think it wise to take him because he had deserted them in Pamphylia and had not continued with them in the work. They had such a sharp disagreement that they parted company. Barnabas took Mark and sailed for Cyprus. But Paul chose Silas and left Commended by the believers to the grace of the Lord, he went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. Pay attention to some of those words there. Deserted them. This isn't like, you know, hey, I got another opportunity. There's a, there's a different job offer and you send them out with a great brunch and everybody high fives as you leave. This is deserted, right? This is like, like I'm not even saying bye, and Luke, who's writing Acts, is telling this story and he's, he's sharing with that word, that word deserted, the nature with which Mark left. It wasn't pleasant. It wasn't fun. And then he goes on to say, because he had not continued in the work. Now, Luke, when he says continued in the work, it's more significant than just kind of like work, general work, whatever. It kind of seems like a neutral word. The work for Luke, as he's writing this, is like the kingdom advancing, Jesus proclaiming work. And so when Luke says he hadn't continued in the work, he's saying that Mark had stopped that. And so it led to this sharp disagreement Sharp disagreement is a, is a great metaphor, that word sharp, because it's painful. It cuts, it hurts, it's pointy, it's not fun. And this is remarkable, because when you think about it, like Paul and Barnabas, they both love Jesus. They both want like good things to happen for him, his church, the world. They love each other. They have a history of relational connection and, and there's friendship and memories that they've shared with each other. And not only that, like this is the early church, baby. You know, the afterglow of the resurrection and Pentecost is still kind of floating around the ethos. But there in this place, there's conflict. There's tension. Well, even more interesting is the fact that there isn't a clear right and wrong. It's actually pretty simple and easy when there's conflict, but there's a wrong party and a right party. Because, you know, then if everybody can agree that somebody did somebody else wrong, then we know that that person needs to repent, apologize, seek forgiveness, and the other person, you know, 
you know, over time can work on that forgiveness and maybe move towards restoration and reconciliation. But in this situation, they both kind of got good positions. Barnabas is playing the grace card. Come on, let's give him another chance. And also Barnabas and John Mark were cousins, so there's a little bias in there maybe. And Paul's knowing that we're stepping into uncertainty. We need somebody that we can rely upon. Both make a good argument. Now here's why I think that's actually good for us. The fact that it's not really black and white. So a lot of our conflict is not often black and white. In fact, if you are to look in your life and some of the conflict maybe you're in the middle of right now or have experienced in the past, and if you think all of the conflict that you've experienced in the past or up to this present moment or even in right now, if you think it's black and white, there's a good party and there's a bad party, you have a little bit more introspection to do. That one's free. So I think Paul and Barnabas offer us something helpful as we look at their conflict because it's true to form, kind of gray, how do you do it? Both have good positions, what do you do? So as we look at Paul and Barnabas, we're gonna see how they handle their conflict. What do they do? And this is important to know, it's, it's not Paul writing a letter, hey, you shouldn't be a jerk to someone else. That's not what's happening here. Rather, we're looking at a life. We're looking at interactions. We're looking at relationships. We're looking at a story. And so we're getting a kind of a magnifying glass at two church leaders and that loved God and disagreed and how did they do it? Well, there's two things that I think we can learn as we kind of like magnify in on uh, Paul and Barnabas. And the first is what I'm calling embrace tension. Embrace tension. Sounds terrible, doesn't it? We don't want to embrace tension. Who wants to embrace tension? I want to embrace like a cold glass of whatever I want and a nice chair and like let that be the metaphor for all of my life. That's what I want to embrace. In fact, I want to embrace that so much that when there is tension, I want to pretend it doesn't exist. I want to sweep it under the metaphorical rug and if it means that I sublimate or push down some of the things that I really care about, that's okay because I'm preserving the status quo. That's my story and maybe it's you. Susan Scott, the author of Fierce Conversations, says, our work, our relationships, and our lives succeed or fail one conversation at a time. And so if we're not present in the conversations that we are in, there's a question of downfield what's going to happen. But really, when you think about it, there's two different types of ways of avoiding conflict. The first one, as I kind of already alluded to, it's pretty obvious, it's passivity. Preserve the status quo at all costs. Don't, be, don't, don't ruffle any feathers. Maintain the peace, even if it's a fake peace. And in doing this, we think that like, we'll avoid the cost of the conflict, because conflict always has a cost. But here's the thing, is that when you let that fake peace be the thing in the relationship. What you're doing is you're not avoiding the cost of the conflict. You're delaying the cost of the conflict. Uh, Joseph Granny, a social scientist, in his research shows that uh, employees that avoid crucial conversations on average 
waste $1,500 for every conversation that they avoid because of the potential conflict they're in. Another way to think about it is they waste an eight-hour workday for every crucial conversation that they avoid. Why? Because here's what happens in crucial conversations, even if they're slightly conflicted. When I bring myself into a conversation and the other brings, person brings themselves into a conversation, and even if there's disagreement, even if there's sharp disagreement, usually if there's a modicum of emotional health and commitment to the church and commitment to each other, commitment to God, usually there's a better conclusion. And if somebody doesn't share their question or share their concern or share their conviction, that oftentimes gets written into the cost downfield because somebody didn't bring themselves into the conversation. They made a commitment to passivity to maintain the fake peace. The other way, though, of avoiding conflict, avoiding the tension, not embracing the tension, is through dominance. Now, this might be less intuitive, but in, when you're a dominant personality and you're filling the room and there's no space for anyone else in the room and no one else's thoughts matter and you're really, it's, it's really about what you think is right because you're right, what happens is, is you avoid the conflict because you steamroll everyone. But eventually it shows up. You see, if there's a passivity and dominance dynamic in a relationship, could be in a marriage, it could be in a workplace, could be uh, in, in the neighborhood, what happens is, is the person experiencing the passivity, the person committed to that fake peace and avoiding the conflict through passivity, grows in resentment over time. The resentment continues to build. And here's what happens. You sweep enough stuff under the rug, you'll trip on it. And so the resentment shows up in the relationship through typically one of two ways. The person experiencing the resentment that didn't use their voice ghosts the other person. Or if the relationship is one you can't ghost, a workplace or some type of other formal relationship, they just stop bringing themselves into the relationship. So they're physically present, but their actual presence isn't there at all. The other way is that there's this really dramatic outburst and everyone in the room saying, whoa, what happened? Well, I've been building this up for months. Think about it like this. Now, I have to tell you, this isn't a true story. <laughs> Candace and I were looking at our budget. We're wanting to make, you know, every dollar work and we're trying to hammer it out and really dial it in so we're a little bit more effective and mindful with how we do our finances. Now, can you imagine the passivity and dominance dynamic working in a budget conversation where I say, I need more money for tattoos. I need a bigger tattoo budget because clearly I don't have enough. I need a weekly skateboard allowance. And I'm not talking about a month every once in a while I get a thing. If I save some amount, no, I need weekly. My coffee budget could use a little bit of enlarging as well. And uh, I think I probably need more regular uh, purchases uh, clothes. And because uh, the stuff I get, I wear through it so quickly. And can you imagine um, if Candace is like, okay, what happens is, if anything, approximating that is all the things I've described. Resentment blooms. Or there's a lack of actual relational engagement. 
because the conflict was avoided. We have to embrace tension. Now, it would have been easy for Paul or Barnabas to kind of slip into a passivity approach. Think about it, like Paul, uh, he, had, he hadn't followed Jesus as long as Barnabas. If you look at the book of Acts, you'll see that Barnabas like was there in the very beginning in the early church. And, and in fact, his name really wasn't Barnabas. He was so intimate with the apostles and had such a tight relationship that the apostles started calling him Barnabas. He was named by the apostles. And so Barnabas, it means like encourager, the one who stands by you and gives you encouragement. They're like, this is who you are, Barnabas. And Barnabas is, identifies with it so much that he embraces it as his name. He's named named by the apostles. And then when Paul comes into the church, it's Barnabas that said, hey, every Christian leader, this is my friend Paul. I'm vouching for him. Barnabas was the one who took him to church for the first Sunday, showed him where the bathrooms were, taught him how to read his Bible, showed him about who Jesus is. This is who Barnabas is. So it would have been very easy for Paul to be like, play the passivity thing and say, okay, Barnabas, if we'll try John Mark again, we'll see what happens. It's your decision. Remember that. It would also have been easy for Barnabas to play the passivity approach. Because like, it's clear God is using Paul. And it's like nobody can slow him down. He's got energy for days. He's got this brilliant mind. And it makes sense maybe even for Barnabas to be like, okay, you, clearly God's using you, so we're just gonna do whatever you say. But they don't. Both of them bring their full selves with their convictions into the relationship. They embrace the tension. Now, here's a couple principles, because I, I know every one of us in here is probably thinking in one way or another, it's like, are you saying that every time I have an opinion, I'm just to announce it, I'm just to share it, I'm just to, here's my convictions, here I stand, I can do no other, take me or leave it, this is who I am, you, I don't care. Every second of the day, no. That would be an interesting thing to watch, but I don't wish that on anyone. Here's two principles, okay, on how to embrace tension. First principle is this, is... <clears throat> the more important the relationship, the more important it is for you to use your voice. The more important the relationship, the more important it is for you to use your voice. If you're in a marriage, if you're working together, if you, if you, are, if you have a real, and like an a actual real significant relationship, it is vital for you to bring yourself and your presence and your thoughts into that relationship because if you don't, all the things that we already described will happen. But if it's a passing relationship, if you see somebody with a bumper sticker that you don't like, you, you, you don't, you're not, don't have to like drive by them and look at them like, as you're driving by. It's just a passing, you know, it doesn't just let that person, and also they'll see the anchor bumper sticker on your car and they'll make a judgment about you. So don't. We also, we have anchor bumper stickers. If you want one, well, you know. <laughs> Second principle is this. The more important the subject matter the more important it is for you to use your voice. If it's an important subject matter, it's vital for you to use your voice. If not for just like, maybe you're even wrong. Maybe you have a, but, but if you use your voice, you create a space where growth can happen, where the relationship can grow. 
even if it's tense. Think of, I'll give an example. And this is a hypothetical situation. It has not happened. I want that to be very clear. But imagine the boardroom at Anchor, our board. Elders and the rest, the whole team's there. And we're looking over the budget. And somebody says, you know what? We should slash the Anchor Cares budget. The people that we're helping out regularly, the people that are in need of whether it's utilities or whatever else, we just slash it. Just, you know what? They should figure it out for themselves. In that situation... It'd be very important for everyone in the room to one, question why that person's on the board, but two, say no. This is important subject matter. Our vision statement says we, are, we exist to live for the good of Tacoma and the greater South Sound. This is who we are. This is important subject matter. The two principles. The more important the relationship, the more important you use your voice. The more important the subject matter, the more important it is for you to use your voice. There's discernment in those spaces. And in this room, I know that there's people that are prone to passivity. Maybe it's just in certain spaces you're prone to passivity. And I would just say this week, when you find yourself tempted towards passivity, just ask an internal question. Maybe it can be a prayer. Maybe it's like, Holy Spirit, guide me, guide me, help me. Do I need to use my voice here? And for some of us that are prone to dominance, and some of us in the room are more prone to dominance, the prayer that we get to pray this week is, do I need to create more space for others in this room? Well, the, the next kind of window we get into Paul and Barnabas as they handle this conflict is staying open, what I'm calling stay open. Now, if you've ever been in a conflict that didn't instantly resolve, staying open might sound impossible or silly, right? The burner's still hot. Don't touch the burner. And I wish, I wish this was true, that everyone that, like, was, we were so healthy, so emotionally healthy, so, like, just like we've done all the work, we had our season with count, whatever, we were just there, that we can have this really tense conflict and then, like, high-five each other and go out for a meal afterwards. I wish we were at that point. I don't think many of us are, really. So, like, there are times where, like, staying open doesn't mean we pursue to make things right instantly, in fact, like we do, I do a lot of premarital counseling uh, and sometimes with the couples we'll talk about the marital, the marital dynamic of a, a withdrawer and a pursuer in conflict. I don't know if, if I'm stepping on any toes at all, touching any nerves. But a lot of times when there's conflict in a marriage, there's someone that withdraws and another one that pursues. And usually the one that withdraws is always to the bathroom and locking the door. Give me space. This is the space I can control. And the pursuer is like probably some type of recovering people pleaser knocking on the door. Hey, can we make it right? Hey, 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 just I need space right now. Sometimes we just need space. Staying open doesn't mean that we don't acknowledge the need for space. Doesn't mean that we rush to re-engage the conflict. But it does mean this, in that liminal space where there hasn't been any type of restoration or reconciliation or maybe even forgiveness, in that liminal space, we're continuing to stay open to us being potentially wrong, at least in some point, and we continue to stay open to the relationship as something in the future. 
And as we're doing this in this liminal space, we resist sabotage. Sabotage is talking about the conflict to someone else. In different seasons of my life, we talked about venting up. You vent your frustration up to a mentor and to God, but not sideways to somebody that, to help triangulate, to promote or protect your insecurities and make them look worse than they already are. You resist sabotage. It would have been very easy for, John, or for, for Barnabas to write to the Jerusalem church and said, hey, Paul is wrong. You need to just, you know, you know just be aware he's off, Okay. And similarly, it'd be very easy for Paul to write to all the churches that they planted, say, hey, Barnabas has gone astray, so just would you? But instead, what happens is they both actually have two successful missionary journeys, even after they've had to part, part ways because of their disagreement. They both continue to advance the gospel in two different places without sabotaging each other's work. The second thing in this liminal space is to make use of the time. Time does not heal all wounds. Time sometimes causes rot or gangrene. We have to make use of the time if it's going to heal wounds. So in this liminal space where we haven't re-engaged in the relationship after the conflict, we look inward. In fact, the history of the church has this prayer of examine where we invite the Holy Spirit to kind of come and do a little inventory work on our soul and our emotions and our thoughts and our motives. And we allow the Holy Spirit to kind of say, hey, search me in the words of the psalmist, search me, see if there's anything that causes offense. God, come in, we look inward. And then we look upward. God, I want to glorify you. Give me insight on how to go forward. And after we look inward and look upward, then we can look outward back at the relationship again with fresh eyes and fresh vision. To stay open means we stay open during that process, that whole process. And we hold to the belief that nothing is beyond God's ability to restore. Even if that means there's a season where we're reevaluating that relationship. We see this with Paul and Barnabas. So 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9, Paul is writing to the Corinthians. He's sharing about what it looks like to follow Jesus with this bunch of knucklehead Corinthians. And he says in chapter 6, verse 9, he actually commends the work of Barnabas. He's speaking highly about his friend Barnabas. He's talking like kindly about his work. And, um, you know, that shows that they're staying, that Paul has had to stay open to who Barnabas is and what that, and that conflict and how to find our way forward. Because it's hard to speak favorably about somebody without having done the work. But it even goes farther, not just with Barnabas, but with Mark. You see, in Philemon, another letter that Paul wrote, he says this, Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends you greetings, and so, do, and so does Mark. Did you catch that? And he goes on to say, these are my fellow workers. Mark, the deserter, the wimp, the runaway, the quitter, the one who just beat it and quit the ministry, jeopardized the mission. Somehow, because Paul has stayed open, and Mark has kept pressing in in his relationship with God, 
He's moved from a person who quit the work to a fellow worker. But even more, the last letter Paul ever wrote to Timothy, his closest homie, Timothy, he writes at the end, and he's talking about the desperate situation that Paul's in. Paul's writing, he's like, hey, I'm in a desperate situation. In fact, he says, could you, could you come to me and come before winter? Because if you wait until after winter, I don't know if I'm going to live. I just, that's the situation I'm in. Come before winter. Come now. And when you come, bring the cloak because I'm cold. They forgot to put heating in this jail cell that I'm in. How dare they? And I'm freezing. And also, could you bring the scrolls, the parchments? Because, like, I don't have anything to study and I'm, I'm, I just need to use my brain. And then what else does he ask? Bring Mark. Because he's useful to me. Mark. This only happened because this guy that had missed, it didn't trust Mark, Mark had a proven record of failure, but Paul had stayed open to the spirit. He'd stayed open to the relationship. He'd stayed open. And now this guy is a coworker and a useful person at one of the most desperate times in Paul's life. It's really cool to follow the story of Mark from this challenging moment in his life uh, even farther. You see, in 1 Peter 5.13, Peter, one of the guys who saw Jesus firsthand, was one of Jesus' closest disciples. He says to the churches that he's writing to, he calls Mark his son. And in fact, we know from history that Peter passed on his firsthand account of the teachings and miracles and death and resurrection of Jesus to who? To Mark. So the one who quit the first missionary journey was the one actually to write the first gospel. As sometimes I think about when I'm preaching, like who am I in the story? Am I Barnabas and am I Paul? And I think in certain situations, I feel like I am. You know, I can imagine certain times where I just, I've, I've, I'm, you know, I needed to step in and embrace the tension and stay open. And I felt like more of a Barnabas and Paul. But as I'm thinking about it, and maybe I hope, maybe you are too. Maybe, maybe you feel like a Mark. I think we're all Mark. We're all people that have been given the sacred task of following Jesus, advancing the kingdom, sharing the gospel, growing in our gifts. And we're like embarrassingly imperfect. There's this ridiculous growth, growth curve where we're just like, ah, I'm falling again. We're all Mark. Because we're all Mark means we need to approach all conflict with humility. Every one of us is here, Ms. Mark. That means the other person that you're in conflict with is Mark. And the good news is that the story of Mark doesn't end with the abandoning of the work, but it ends with the recording of the teachings of Jesus and the co-working for the gospel and the kingdom and advancing the name of Jesus. We're all Mark. We all have that story. So I just want to encourage us this week and weeks following when we have a wait what moment and it's centered around relational conflict to embrace the tension to not go the way of passivity or dominance but to embrace the tension 
and to stay open, resist sabotage, make use of time, stay open. Why? Because this is what it looks like to model conflict as a Jesus follower in a world that frankly doesn't know how to deal with conflict. But even more, this is what Jesus first did to us far beyond, or far before Paul and Barnabas even existed. You see, it'd be easy for Jesus in the Trinity to be looking at creation, being like, well, they're doing a pretty good job sinning. Let's just wait till they burn the whole thing down. But Jesus embraced the tension and didn't go the way of passivity, just ignoring the mess and didn't go the way of dominance of just knocking the whole thing apart and starting over, but was born as a baby and grew up as a man and taught and showed and did miracles so that we would see what true life and kingdom look like. And so, and then died so that we might be reconciled and, and so that we might receive everything that is his and he might take away everything that is negative and of, of us and so that we might be reconciled to God and walk in this freedom powered by the Holy Spirit. And right now, it's not just that God has embraced that tension of our brokenness and pushed through it, but he stays open for everyone here, the whole world. He's open to you right now. Some of you might even wonder if you believe in God. He's open to you right now. Just say yes to him. Take that first step. He's open to you right now. He's showing you what it looks like to walk and to, to live. And all you have to say is yes. The band's going to come up and the prayer team and the communion team will take their places. And, and I want to just give you a second to just ask the Holy Spirit, is there anything that you want to say? Am I slipping into passivity or dominance? Am I avoiding the tension altogether? Do I need to stay open? So we ask Spirit to speak. And I want to invite you um, to receive prayer. I've made this commitment to myself every week I'm going to come up for prayer because I think every week I have something I can get prayer for. I want to invite you to that same thing. Maybe, maybe there's a situation in your life that the Spirit's been tapping you on the shoulder during this teaching and you can get prayer at the sides of the prayer stations. And every week we do communion and communion is this beautiful picture of like if we come in with questions of where we stand with God, uh, we're reminded as we come forward for communion, as we hear the words, Christ's body given for you, Christ's blood shed for you. And any questions about where we stand with God are answered knowing that it was done for you and is freely offered to you. So we invite you to stand as you're able and sing, come forward for communion when you're ready, come for prayer as you're able and as you're ready. Don't miss the opportunity that God has for you in this moment. And as you're standing, I'll pray for you. Spirit of the living God, would you come in this place? We invite you here. We know that you're already here. Soften our hearts. Open our eyes. Help us to, with discernment on the way forward. Give us courage. Help us to be people of courage. To say the words that need to be said. To be honest about our own hearts and motivations and motives. And to see what you'll do as we follow you.